It's Friday, January 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Border authorities have just announced that they discovered the longest ever smuggling tunnel at the U.S.-Mexico border. It runs 4,309 feet between Tijuana and San Diego. Authorities said that it was a sophisticated tunnel 70 feet below the surface, two feet across, and about five and a half feet high. Steve Gregory, reporter at KFI News in Los Angeles, joins us for more. Next, a dog owner is airing a Super Bowl ad to thank the University of Wisconsin at Madison School of Veterinary Medicine for saving his best friend from a dire cancer prognosis. David McNeil, owner of WeatherTech, is airing a 30-second spot as a thank you and a call for people to donate to the school. Kim Belware, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for a story about a very lucky dog. Finally, a story about Randy Constant, a Missouri farmer who led a double life and masterminded one of the biggest frauds in the history of organic farming. Constant sold organic feed grain that wasn't really organic. And once it got into the supply chain, it meant that all the poultry and cattle that ate that feed were also not organic. Mike Hendricks, investigative reporter at the Kansas City Star, joins us for how Constant cheated the system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is 70 feet below the surface of the ground, and the height of the tunnel averages about five and a half feet high and two feet wide. Now imagine you're the person that has to go in there and go for about almost a mile. It's like five football fields long. That's how far it is. Joining us now is Steve Gregory, reporter with KFI News based in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Of course. My pleasure. We just got word that U.S. border authorities have found the longest ever tunnel between the Mexico and U.S. border. This is a drug smuggling tunnel. And I love a good tunnel story ever since we heard about El Chapo escaping prison and all the network of tunnels that they built for him. So this is kind of something along the same lines right there. Steve, tell us about this new tunnel that they found. Well, we're talking about 4,309 feet long. That's eight-tenths of a mile, three-quarters of a mile, if you will. It is a long tunnel. And get this, it is 70 feet below the surface of the ground, and the height of the tunnel averages about five and a half feet high and two feet wide. Now, imagine you're the person that has to go in there and go for about almost a mile. It's like five football fields long. That's how far it is. And authorities actually discovered it back in August of last year, and they found the entrance to it on the northeast corner of the Tijuana International Airport. And when they got down inside of there, they realized this thing was pretty long. So they called in the team of surveyors and a bunch of tunnel experts, and they had sonar mapping. And then it took them months to actually map this thing out because they had no idea what they were climbing into and how far it went. Right. I mean, you don't know if people are down there. Uh, The authorities have released video and pictures of this. I mean, it looks like a horror video game almost. I mean, there's water on the floors, long, dark tunnels, but it did have solar powered lighting. I read it had ventilation. It had an elevator at the entrance. I mean, this is some sophisticated stuff. And they get more and more sophisticated. The soil there is what makes it so attractive for tunnels because the soil is primarily clay with rock mixed in. So it's almost a natural concrete, if you will. They don't have to build support beams inside of these tunnels because that clay is pretty sturdy. So it's easy for them to get in there and they can do it in a faster amount of time, though it's harder to dig the clay. 
but it's a more robust and more stable environment down there. So when they get down in there, there are electrical panels, which continue to light the path along the way, also to use for drainage pumps, some pumps, because a lot of that tunnel is actually down into the water table. So there's constant water in there. So in order to bypass that, they have to put in these pumps, similar to what you would have in some sort of a, in plumbing, like in the bottom of a boat or something like that, a sump pump to keep the thing drained constantly. So they had to have power down in there and oxygen too. There was forced air all throughout that tunnel. And the tunnel started, as I mentioned, on the Tijuana side, and it went north to the U.S. border. And then it kind of veered off to the right. One fork of it went to the right and stopped just across the border into the U.S., about 3,000 feet inside the U.S. line. Now, the end of that was packed with sandbags, and they're not clear if that was a usable entrance or exit at one point, so they're not able to tell. And then the left fork went a little further west into the U.S., but it just hit a dead end. What's really creepy is they have no idea how long that tunnel's been there and when it was built. Going back to some of the pictures and videos they released, there was old clothing left behind, trash, things like that. They couldn't tell when it might have been used last. They suspect that it was a narco tunnel. So this thing was a very, as you mentioned, sophisticated setup. It had a rail and cart system where it would go down in there. And then sometimes these are set up to where someone on the other end will pull that cart. So when the cart is loaded, they'll radio over and say, okay, go ahead and start pulling. And they'll just literally pull from the other side and pull these carts of drugs through. I'm sure that experts are going to get in there and they're going to be able to tell maybe by any kind of rust or like the fraying of any kind of electrical lines or something, you know, any kind of erosion from the water. They'll probably get a pretty good sense of how long like the water's been pooling or how long the rust has been there. They're going to get a pretty good sense. They haven't been able to really study a lot of that yet, even though it was discovered in August. They've been more focused on mapping it out properly and getting an idea of how long it actually is. The other thing they're not telling us is who they think the tunnel belongs to or who dug it. But it, it was discovered in an area that was kind of a stronghold from the Sinaloa cartel. And I guess there's no arrest been made in this and they didn't find any drugs inside there. But this is a kind of an area typical to that cartel and something that they've done before. They've shown the capabilities to do this before. El Chapo, I mean, the tunnels were something that he was mighty proud of, actually. And when I had been asked about it before, and he said, well, who do you think did it? And I said, it only looks like the work of the Sinaloa cartel because they're one of the more well-funded cartels, and they are the ones that employ all of these ditch diggers and all these you know, engineers. But again, we keep throwing that word sophisticated around. It really is because they have the foresight to put the electrical in there, the pumps and the solar power and all of that. So these are no dummies by no stretch. They've got engineers that are on the payroll putting this together. Steve Gregory, reporter with KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Scout and I'm a lucky dog. And it's not just because I found this cool stick or that I was in the WeatherTech commercial on the big game last year. It's that I'm a cancer survivor, had a tumor on my heart and only a 1% chance of survival. I'm alive thanks to a cutting edge program at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine. Joining us now is Kim Belware, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Thank you for having me. There's going to be a very interesting ad during the Super Bowl. It's going to happen in the second quarter. It's going to be an ad for WeatherTech, but it's also like a, a donation type of ad. WeatherTech has been advertising on the Super Bowl, I think, for six years now. 
but this time it has a slightly different twist to it. This concerns the CEO of it, David McNeil. His dog was actually given a pretty grim cancer diagnosis, and he took the dog, his name is Scout, to the University of Wisconsin at Madison School of Veterinary Medicine, and they helped turn it, him around, and now he's living a healthy life again. So what David McNeil wants to do is run an ad basically thanking the people there, the vets that helped save his dog's life. Tell us a little bit more about this story. This was something that was a huge surprise, a welcome one to the university. And it was one that they really weren't a part of initially because, as you said, David McNeil has done advertisements for the Super Bowl before for his company. But in this case, he was so overwhelmed and so grateful by the care and support and the way he was treated. He had mentioned that in other videos that I saw. He was so moved by the support and the care that his dog Scout received that he's going to help them raise money and raising money and raising the profile for something like a veterinary school. It's something that they don't get that opportunity for very often. So tell us about Scout and what happened with this, because they're running a 30-second ad, and it's going to detail kind of, you know, what happened with the diagnosis and what happened throughout the treatment and all. But tell us what we know about Scout. The 30-second spot will cover how he originally came to the veterinary school because he had a tumor on his heart and how they treated him, and he's all but recovered in perfect health. The deeper dive into what happened was last summer, the seven-year-old golden retriever collapsed, and David McNeil took his dog to a local vet. They gave the dog a really grim diagnosis, said that he would maybe be lucky to live another month. He had a pretty large tumor on his heart, and he had an aggressive kind of blood cancer. So the very next day, David takes Scout, piles him into the car, drives up to Wisconsin and goes in as an emergency patient, you know, at maybe eight in the morning, no appointment. And he says in some later interviews that he was just so moved at how empathetic and how caring they were. And now he's pretty much cancer free. WeatherTech themselves, people might know them. They do custom floor mats for cars and trucks and all that. And they've been advertising for a while. I think I read somewhere that the cost for this 30 second spot and the production cost for all this comes out to $6.5 million. I wasn't able to get an exact answer on how much this particular spot cost, but we do know that a 30-second spot for the Super Bowl this year runs in the mid-5 million figure. So where exactly this ad falls on that spectrum, we know that it's expensive. This is a very nice story, and I'm glad that Mr. McNeil wants to give back and show his thanks for this. And people can go to weathertech.com slash donate. That's where the Super Bowl ad is going to point people to. 100% of the proceeds goes to the university there. But it goes beyond that. You know, cancer rates in dogs are just about the same as they are in humans. And even some of the approaches that are used on dogs first end up being applied to humans later. So it really has the potential, you know, money and research that they can do from this really has the potential to even help humans. And that was something that Mark Markell, the dean of UW-Madison's veterinary school, said he was most excited about because with smaller platforms and less visibility, you know, so often medical research is focused on the impact that it can have on humans. And a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact or they aren't aware of the fact that some of the techniques that are tested in animals first are what end up leading to breakthroughs that end up saving humans' lives. So the one that they used on Scout is something that was originally developed at that university and it's widely used on people now. Yeah, that's the uh, tomotherapy, right? I guess it's a method that uses 3D scans of a tumor, and then since they have such a great map of it, they can focus the radiation. And the FDA made UW-Madison prove it on animals first before they can use it on humans. So, I mean, they're at the forefront of a lot of this stuff. 
UW-Madison in particular is really considered to be on the cutting edge of veterinary research. So this is something that's pretty exciting for them. And and one of the things that they're currently participating in, they're one of three schools that's part of a current trial that's testing a cancer vaccine for dogs. And that's something that they're hopeful could have applications for human use later on down the line. Kim Bellware, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. Had he uh, quote-unquote earned millions of dollars through this scheme, he did not live a lavish lifestyle in Chillicothe, Missouri, where he grew up. He had a sort of ordinary, comfortable but modest house. And he took his whole entire extended family, about a dozen people, to uh, resort vacations every year. Joining us now is Mike Hendricks, investigative reporter at the Kansas City Star. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking about a very interesting story about a man named Randy Constant, who was at one point one of the top farmers in the organic farming products. At one point, he was successful farming magazines, one of the 10 successful farmers to watch in America. But what we ended up finding out that he was leading one of the biggest frauds in U.S. farm history And this all had to deal with organic products. He was selling non-organic grain as organic. And the reason why it's so big and why this is so important is it really is the whole supply chain of things. You know, starting with the grain, it's supposed to be organic. It's fed to animals who then get certified organic and then on to the consumer who buys organic food, uh, organic poultry and meat in this case, or so they thought. This was this big old fraud case that came out. He was doing this for about seven years, I think, from 2010 to 2017. Mike, tell us a little bit more about Randy Constant and this whole scheme. Well, Randy Constant uh, started out as an organic farmer, I think, who really believed in growing crops organically, both for the supposed health benefits, but also for the uh, environmental reasons. And somewhere along the way, and during the 2000s, he realized that the regulatory uh, system has so many holes in it that someone could take advantage of that. And the reason someone would want to is because organic grain is sold for about twice the price of conventionally grown corn and soybeans. So how exactly do you earn that organic seal? I know that it has to do with pesticides and not using genetically modified grains. How do you get that designation? Well, before you apply to the government, but you also prove to the government that you have not used any uh, chemical fertilizers or synthetic pesticides on those crop acres for at least three years before uh, you get your certification or and then afterwards. And you present that paperwork to the uh, buyers of your product to show that you have that certification. And you get the certification in part by inspectors who are work for private companies who have been themselves certified by the government as knowing how to check for uh, fraud by looking through uh, your paperwork. So he was doing this for, I mean, about 10 years, maybe, maybe longer. People don't really know exactly. So how did he actually get away with this? Because he had some co-conspirators that eventually, you know, led to his downfall also. But they were mixing some organic and some non-organic grains, and that's what they were selling. Is that how it was? He had a number of farmers who supplied him with grain, and they themselves had their own organic certification. But they did not have a certification for as many acres as crops uh, they were providing him with. The bushels just didn't add up. The federal government indicted him. Three uh, farmers in Nebraska and one in Missouri who supplied him with grain that was in excess 
of their capacity to produce organic grain. What did we learn about what Randy was doing with all of that money? Because as we mentioned in the beginning, you know, he had this persona of a very community man, went to church, he was involved with everybody there. So what did we learn about all the money that he got and how he was using it? Randy, uh, quote unquote, earned millions of dollars through this scheme. He did not live a lavish lifestyle in Chillicothe, Missouri, where he grew up. He had a sort of ordinary, comfortable, but modest house. And he took his whole entire extended family, about a dozen people, to uh, resort vacations every year, like Hilton Head, uh, about a dozen folks. But uh, secretly, he also took uh, more than 20 trips to uh, Las Vegas, where he uh, gambled and had women on the side. He uh, hired escorts for prostitution uh, services and supported three women who he had relationships with, one of whom uh, he treated to a trip to Spain, paid for a car, and paid for her uh, breast augmentation surgery. Yeah. What do we know about how the USDA has responded to all of this? Because in part, he got away with this because they weren't maybe doing their due diligence to really go through the full process and certify him. Well, we're not clear exactly on how he got away with it. We do know that he told the government how he did what he did, but the government didn't share that with folks. But we can tell from the new regulations that the uh, USDA has promulgated and will play, be publishing and putting out for public comment this year that he was able to fool the inspectors through the paperwork. And so what these new regulations will do in part is will require more inspections for residues, the chemicals, but also to do more what they call trace back so they can double check, make sure that the grain that he supposedly sold to a customer and make sure he's not trying to sell it basically the same grain twice on paper. In the very end of things, what was the sentence for Randy Constant? And then Randy is actually no longer with us. He committed suicide shortly after he was sentenced, right? Right. He was sentenced on a Friday in August to 10 years in prison and told to forfeit essentially a fine, $128 million. Uh, he was destitute at the time, didn't have that money. They gave him some time to report to prison. Three days later, he pulled his pickup truck into a garage and left the engine running. The defense of Randy, uh, you know, his, his defense team, you know, said, you know, this really never hurt anybody. Everybody made their money. The people that were buying organic, you didn't get anything worse. You weren't, we weren't selling you like spoiled meat or anything like that. So they were trying to really play it off as like this was a crime that hurt nobody. Yeah, that's how they tried to play it off. But the judge would have none of that. A, he believed it damaged the public trust in the organic food system. Yeah, completely. It also, it also had an effect on uh, organic farmers. Uh, because he was able to sell so much of this grain that wasn't organic, by flooding the market with this grain, he depressed prices probably too. But they were unable to prove this, and ultimately there was no money to dispense the victims, and no victims actually came forward to, to try and claim money had there been. Wow. It was just a crazy story. Is something, I mean, most people probably never knew even happened. It was going on for a decade at least. Mike Hendricks, investigative reporter at the Kansas City Star, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.